so oh, but you don't know. Okay, so if um, you are, if you got, if you got your midterm from Matthew, then your paper was graded by me. Um, so uh, that is, if your name starts with your last name starts with A through um, Lee, um, you should have your paper back via email. Matthew has the papers that he has. If you're if you're A through Lee. Um, and you didn't get your paper back, I think what that means is I don't have it. So, is it, so um, uh, no, I'm doing that wrong. Yeah, the, other yeah, the other way around. What? Yeah. See, this is an illustration of Freudian reversal, which is going to be our subject, so this is very cleverly done by me. Um, if you are Ollie through um, Zeta or Zed, um, then you should have your paperback from me. And if not, then you should be getting your paper back today. This is assuming you handed your paper in. If you didn't hand your paper in, it would be nice if we were handing back your counterpart's paper, because I guess the idea would be it would be possible that in some possible world you had gotten your paper in. But we don't have your counterpart's papers either. So at least I don't know if we do. We might and not know it. It's possible. Okay, so in some possible world, we did hand your counterparts' papers back to you, but not in this one. Not yet, at any rate. Um, okay, so um, we are going to, we have a bunch of stuff to do today and before vacation, um, but one, so I mentioned um, before uh, during the assignment, and I'm going to mention this again as a possibility for your second paper if you didn't do this on your first. If you do the video clip possibility, um, I had imagined, and I think most of you had imagined, that you would be doing it the way Markley did. That is, um, stitching together found bits of film, um, many of them well-found and well-founded because they're from famous films. And um, at least the ones I got, um, I really liked. But uh, one person asked, and I answered, that if you want to do your own clips, that is, if you have some, if you want to make your own kind of um, iPhone movie um, where you take, uh, put things together, not by way of telling a story, at least not by way of um, narrative movie making, but by way of um, putting together things the way um, you might be putting together clips, you could do that. So one person did. And um, do you want to talk about it, or should I? Um, so Simon did, and what? And um, in writing about it, which would be the other part of it, if you do do the clips, um, you do have to do what one of you called a debrief um, about how it worked, what you were trying to do, um, whether it succeeded, why it's so great, why um, it could be better, whatever. Um, and um, that would be part of the interestingness of the um, project or of the exercise. Um, Simon did a really interesting set of clips, which he decided didn't work. Um, I'm not sure I agree with him, but he decided that it didn't work to watch them alone in your room, in one's room. Um, and as you'll see, part of the idea, I think, at least part of what he was thinking about when he was thinking about why he thought it didn't quite work, at least for him, um, was that... Um, thinking about the people um, in an audience with you when you're watching um, the three minutes that he put together um, might affect the experience, which is something that we have been talking about, the circuit through other audience members. 
So I suggested, let's show it to you. Um, he said yes. And um, so uh, this is the one original um, video made by one of you for the class so far. So we're going to watch it, and then um, you will see that it's relevant to stuff. I hope you'll see that it's relevant to stuff that we're doing today. So I think what you can do is just log on. Um, I think that's probably the easiest way to do it. Is, um, if you do it that way. Um, most people have managed to do it through YouTube, um, and a couple of people did it through Dropbox, and one person for my sins did it through Google Drive. Um, so YouTube, if you can get it on YouTube, is what I would suggest, and then you can share it with your friends and your grandchildren in, um, in 30 years. Remember when YouTube claimed to be closing? Was that last year's April Fool's joke? Do you guys remember this? YouTube did an announcement that after 10 years of YouTube or whatever it was, they were now going to figure out what the best YouTube ever was, so they were closing down. You remember that? Um, in order for Google's employees to review every YouTube ever, submit, ever submitted to um, give the YouTube prize, and of course some people believe that. Um, do you know that Gmail was released on April 1st? And people thought it was, a, it was an April Fool's joke? Um, because it seemed so ridiculous at the time, at, in, in a in a wor in a world where people were using Hotmail, um, Google announced Gmail on April first, and everyone thought, "Oh, that's funny. That will never work." Um, but it was a it was a meta April Fool's joke. Okay, so um, do you want to say anything? Or just um, no. Okay. I mean, it's just the idea of like seeing other people blink and how you never think about it as very important and relevant, but it actually is. And it's just discomfort of seeing, like, if you think about blinking, it just certainly becomes very uncomfortable for you. And also the idea of you can dehumanize a person and reduce them to just a very basic quality, which is their eyes, and you can still retain part of what their individual personality is.
was it. Cool, thank you. Um, all right, so I have questions, but you might have questions also or comments. Anyone? see the camera reflected through their eyes and you can see me standing there with my camera yeah and it's sort of like also the idea of you are seeing what they are seeing through their eyes but at the other hand you're also just seeing, seeing them seeing you know? yeah so um say why you did it in black and white and why you did it like that uh, so the reason why I chose black and white and not in color is because you can sort of tell who a person is by their by their tone of skin and like well, I don't think you want to put it that way. No, like in, like in general, like you can see, like there's certain traits of a person, like like even their eyebrows is very, like you can notice sort sort of notice who each person is. Okay. So the more you put them on the same plane, you're like there's no noise, there's no there's no color, there's nothing, except for their eyes and them blinking. Mm -hmm. So it sort of evens out the playing field, and you dehumanize them as much as you can. Okay. Yeah. So when you were doing it, what um, did they know what you were doing? Uh, not originally. I just. <laughs> <laughs> I just asked them to blink into the camera. Like, so, but they knew that you were taking pictures of them blinking. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They, I just told them look into the camera and blink, and some of the reactions were very interesting. One of the people, like some people, thought of it as a joke, and they, like you could see, as they, they blind, they cross their eyes, whatever. Yeah, two people cross their eyes, right? Yeah. Yeah, one really vividly, and the other as a way of not blinking, maybe. Yeah, and then there was another person who sort of was confused and was having an overall bad day. And so he, like, he blinked and he just looked down for a second. And you could see how sad he was and how he was just having a very bad day. So you can also tell like, what they're feeling and who they, who they are inside through the way they look at you. And were any of them upset by this? Not really. So a lot of them were very interested in it. I mean, if you, if you tell them that it's for a film project, they, people are willing to just about accept anything. <laughs> so, um, did, did you look at any of the psychological studies of blinking? Not really. Okay, um, so did, um, does anyone know any of the psychological studies? There actually are some, um, because if you're not going to be looking at the gorilla, you've got to be counting blinks or something. Um, but does anyone know about this, about blinking? Um, it turns out that it's a little bit like yawning, it's contagious or not contagious, that is it has to do, um, and also like laughter, you know most laughter is not at stuff that's funny, <laughs> it's just <laughs> um, most laughter is, is a kind of um, gesture in um, a game of nervousness about um, social status which is what all social interactions really are, there's always some slight edge of nervousness um, just about, uh, about calibrating status. Um, and most laughter has to do with, or happens um, as part of the fine-tuning of that calibration. Um, it turns out that blinking works the same way. That is that um, 
people will often um, follow each other's blinking. If, if um, two people are, are just looking at each other and one of them blinks, the other will. And if one of them blinks rapidly or does more than um, an average number of blinks per time unit, so will the other. And so there's a kind of unconscious or preconscious or subliminal um, communication going on. Um, if you think about it, blinking is... Um, like a lot of things we do, uh, like laughter um, also, a kind of concession of vulnerability um, that you're making to the other person. It's a way of reassuring them, which laughter is also. Reassurance doesn't mean you have higher status, by the way. It just means that you're reassuring them that you're not um, um, struggling too hard to put them down and to put yourself up. Um, so... Um, the reassurance in blinking partly takes the form, probably, of the fact that you're doing two things when you blink. One is you are blinding yourself, however instantaneously, you are blinding yourself. You are um, saying that your, um, it, your attention is not unremitting, which means that the other person can relax. Um, that is, you're not just staring at them and um, not letting anything go by. If you blink, you're relaxing a little bit and thereby allowing the other person to relax. Yeah? I just think it's funny that the screen blink is kind of flipping a little bit. It made me think of like, movies that include blinks. What do you think of like, blinks purposefully blinks when like, in things like being John Malkovich? There's a couple of them. Yeah. Very weird. Yeah. Like, a couple of people would call what blinks on those. Yeah, so in something like being John Malkovich, where you're seeing, where it, if you know it, you're seeing out of his eyes, um, and therefore the fact of blinking um, is something that you see him doing. Um, and if you are seeing um, huge subjective point of view in most movies, um, and as I say, there's very little absolute subjective point of view, but there's no blinking, for example, for those of you who did Lady in the Liker, for those of you who watched all the clips on the midterm, um, there's no blinking in Lady in the Lake. Um, that is, there's no point where the um, Philip Marlowe character, played by Robert Montgomery, who is the camera, um, we never see him blink. Uh, we do see him close his eyes. We see him um, get knocked cold. That is, the screen goes black, which is not what he would be seeing, but um, we take it as a sin because he's unconscious. He's not seeing anything. Um, but it doesn't matter because our blinks will do fine for his blinks. That is, if we blink, and even if we're aware of blinking, um, which we generally aren't, but um, if we blink, he's blinking. Um, there's a blink, there's a visual field, which is blinked. Um, and we can do that part of the subjective camera for him. There's not much we can do for him if we're forced to be seeing out of his eyes, but that part we can do for him. And um, that's, what's, that's what's really interesting about, about the actual blinks in being John Malkovich and our um, having to recognize them as blinks. And, you know, John Malkovich is the perfect person to blink when you wouldn't blink. Um, that's his way. Um, so, um, but again, um, what you're doing when you blink is, um, for one thing, you're saying, I'm not staring at you completely. Another thing you're saying is, my eyes are a little irritated. That is, that vision itself um, is, you know, I'm, I'm not a perfect seer. 
um, my seeing requires um, some it requires me to to do some things for my comfort, which makes me human. Um, so is that an English teacher overreading, blinking? Yeah, but it is um, just what's what's flickering instantaneously within the social interactions um, of blinking. That's why it turns out that blinking is um, social. Also, it's cultural. Um, the way people blink seems to have some cultural determinants. People in different cultures um, have different patterns of blinking. Um, so that itself is a really interesting fact. How many of you were conscious watching this of your own blinking as you were watching it? Um, and how did you feel about being conscious about that? You got very uncomfortable. How come? One of my eyes felt really dry. Mm-hmm. Like, so it was looking at all their eyes. I made... look away. Yeah. For like two seconds, because I couldn't. Wow. Yeah, it was really uncomfortable for me. Wow. Want to watch it again? <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. Did other people have that experience? Yeah. Yeah, or the fact that some part of your body is always itching. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> Did you not want me to remind you of that? Okay. Um, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Well, you know, the other thing blinking permits is for you to look away. That is, again, in a face-to-face interaction with someone, um, what you can do if it's just getting uncomfortable because who's going to look away first and, um, is it provides a really convenient exit ritual from, um, from looking at someone because you blink and then your eyes are elsewhere when you open them. Um, that's one of the things that makes cutting in movies possible. Um, the fact that we can go from seeing one thing to seeing something completely different um, instantaneously after the 10th or 24th or 16th of a second that a blink takes, we can be looking elsewhere. And we don't say to ourselves, oh my god, space is discontinuous, Kant was wrong and I'm in trouble. We just say I'm looking somewhere else. Because space is continuous and Kant was right and things are just hunky-dory. Um, we talked about this a little bit also. There are things called um, saccades, which are, in fact, even without blinking, you lose... Um, vision for the blink of an eye um, when you shift your attention from one place to another. So if you look um, look to your left and then look to your right, you don't really see what your eyes are passing over as you go from one place to another. That's a convenient time to blink, um, but you don't have to blink to get the effect of blinking, um, which, is, which is that disappearance. Um, did you feel uncomfortable on Simon's behalf as you were watching? That is, were you uncomfortable about what it would be like to just be, well, pretty much in your face um, to all those people? Did anyone have that feeling? Yeah, you did? I mean, yeah, I felt like I was staring at Yeah. Even though you knew, like with the TV camera, um, as Bezin talks about it, that they aren't seeing you. Um, you do see him if you're looking in the reflections in the eye in in people's pupils. Um, yeah. Yeah, I got the feeling that they weren't just blinking; they were responding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and responding maybe partly to how close were you 
Uh huh. Yeah. Um, did you ever get the sense that some of the blinks were real? Yeah. No, 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 I meant Simon, but yeah, what about you as well? Yeah, especially when there were two very quick fluttering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, th so sometimes what you might get is something that's um, ambiguous between real and not real, which is like it might be, well, I'm supposed to blink, and I'm going to blink away that requirement. Um, so the very fact that they're supposed to blink might make them really blink because of the discomfort of having um, to be supposed to, to blink. Did you do yourself? No. Um, did everyone feel that they could tell the gender of the people they were looking at? Um, ever? I thought people, they all ended up kind of looking like baby elephants. <laughs> <laughs> That's because they all were. <laughs> That's the part he didn't tell you. Go on. Yeah, go on. No, I, I don't know. You mean sad-eyed and... They, for whatever reason, just looked like they could have trunks out of the bottom of the thing. It's like when you look at someone, like, their face upside down. I don't know, I always think they kind of look like octopuses. But maybe, maybe that's not like a general thing. Um, that's just me. I think it might be a cartoon thing. That is, I think that there is... Um, the way octopuses are animated with big eyes in cartoons, they might look like um, upside-down heads. Um, yeah? I have a question for Sam. Um, uh, some, of the, some of the people build the whole screen and sometimes use it half their face. Was there a particular reason they did uh, Not in the order that I had it, but in the fact that you can see both their eyes, you can see one of their eyes, and it's still the same. You know, so like, you can see... You can see your entire face, you can see only a part of your face, and you're still the same person in the end. But in this case, you have both eyes, you can sort of tell who they are. You have one eye, you can tell you the parts. Which are like different levels of dehumanizing. Did you ever do just their right eye? Yeah. You did? Okay, because the ones I'm remembering are their left eyes. Actually, wait. I did, but they were bad shots, so I didn't put them in. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Something about right eyes will do that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think that's what Homer was thinking about when he came up with the Cyclops. Um, Isabel. I found it less dehumanizing that it was dehumanizing that it was a face thing that we were using when you repeat a word over and over again. Yeah. Which is completely weird. Yeah. Um, which is strange. How many people having seen this would like eagerly volunteer to be filmed blinking by Simon? All right. Um, do you have your camera? <laughs> I feel like after seeing this, I might not. Um, like, oh, yeah, you want to take me blinking? Sure, whatever. Academics, I don't know. Um, but um, after seeing it, I might be more hesitant, but uh, maybe that's just me. Um, all right, well, that's a um, possible segue. Do people have other comments or questions? Uh, I was just wondering whether or not the lack of sound was on decision. No, the lack of sound was on purpose. Uh, at the beginning of the year, we talked about how there was a movie that actually showed one minute of silence, and which the characters were silent for one minute. So the, the short itself takes, I think, a minute and 17 seconds. And it feels like such a much longer time because you're sitting in complete silence with the group of the other people. 
that are also sitting in silence waiting for something to happen. And it's just repetition that's going on, so nothing is really happening except for the same thing over and over and over again. Okay. Um, well, thank you. I thought that was uh, fascinating. It is, it is a good segue into Vertigo. Um, how many people saw Vertigo for the first time? Uh, recently voted, recently upgraded from number two to number one greatest movie of all time. You don't agree? Yeah. Why not? Just, I mean, the whole like first part of it, I unfortunately found a little bit boring. But then, like, I don't know. I just remember like watching it and being like, "There's so many like weird like plot gaps and stuff," and I just. I just didn't find it, like, so spectacular. Yeah. And also, I just really uh, don't like Jimmy Stewart, so <laughs> that doesn't help. Well, if you don't like Jimmy Stewart, a little Jimmy Stewart goes a long way. <laughs> um, but he has played as much more unappealing than usual. Um, that's it, it. That was a reach for him. That was actually a, a pretty courageous role for him because everyone except you um, likes him. Um, and then here he's um, very close to being a villain by the end. Um, and uh, that's not what anyone is expecting from him. Yeah, I mean, I like the plot twist. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just about that plot twist and the fact that he turns out to be a villain, um, to give a little Hitchcockian background to that, um, how many people know the Hitchcock movie Suspicion? Um, so in Suspicion, um, it's one of, I think, uh, five Hitchcock movies starring Cary Grant. Um, not sure that's right, but um, certainly at least three. No, I think it's, it is five. Um, what the movie is about is um, a Cary Grant plays a dashing and rakish ne'er-do-well um, who marries, um, who seduces and marries, or seduces, courts and marries, uh, because he's so charming, the very, very shy, um, a very, very shy young heiress. And she becomes aware of the fact that um, he's doing very suspicious things, and she begins to um, worry that he's, that he's trying to murder her. And um, in the course of the movie, it becomes more and more clear um, that she has reason to worry um, and that he might very well um, be out to murder her. Um, in the original version that Hitchcock shot, he murders her. Um, and she was right. And it's a Hitchcock horror movie um, where one of the things that Hitchcock specializes in, and you can see this um, to some extent in Rear Window and Vertigo, but there's so much else going on that um, it's, not, um, it's, it's not at the forefront of, um, what, of our experience of the movie. But one of the things that Hitchcock specializes in is um, scenarios where people can figure out what's going on but can't stop it. Um, that is, it's not that they're tricked. They may start out being tricked, um, but they figure out what the trick is. They figure out what's going on, um, but even though they know they can't stop it, and the fact that they can't stop it is um, a huge element of, of um, horror or quasi-horror in Hitchcock. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of plot paralysis. They know what the plot against them is, 
but knowing it doesn't do them any good. Um, the person who is more or less in that situation in vertigo is actually Judy. Um, that is, when um, Jimmy Stewart starts acting really, when Scotty starts acting um, strange in the second half of the movie, um, his strangeness is a nightmare for her, and she's constantly trying to get out of his relentless reconstruction of Madeline. And if she can only get out of that, we think there could be a happy ending. Um, if somehow he would be content with Judy as Judy rather than demanding that she be remade as Madeline. And um, before we even know the truth, how many people were surprised by the plot twist? Um, okay. Uh, before we even know it, we wish he would stop. Um, after we know it, we really wish he would stop. Um, and um, that relentlessness on his part, that's something that, um, that, that's the vertigo version of something that Hitchcock does a lot. Um, in some of his later movies, it's almost as though that's all he's doing, like The Birds, um, where if you haven't seen The Birds, um, it's scary. If you have seen The Birds, it's scary, isn't it? Um, and it's relentless. And um, that relentlessness is what happens in Suspicion, which is that um, the, the young woman becoming more and more aware that this completely charming scamp of a husband of hers is a murderer, um, that becomes just something that there's nothing she can do about. And um, the famous scene in Suspicion um, is one where Cary Grant is, she's, she's getting sicker and sicker. Um, and he comes upstairs to bring her her milk. And um, so you see Cary Grant walking up these stairs with just with this glass of milk in his hands. And um, she thinks, and we worry, that it has poison in it. And um, Hitchcock actually, when he shot that, um, Hitchcock was one of the most inventive uh, movie makers um, in the history of movies. Really, no one after 1900 was more inventive. Some of the early, well, no, that won't work. Um, in that famous scene of Cary Grant walking up the stairs holding a glass of milk, what Hitchcock actually did was he took a glass, painted its inside white, and put a light bulb in it um, so that it's just glowing and we're just riveted by it. And he's Cary Grant just cheerfully walking up the stairs um, carrying this glowing glass of milk. Um, and we're really terrified. So Hitchcock made the movie, Cary Grant does turn out to be a murderer. Everything we were hoping wouldn't turn out to be the case turned out to be the case. And um, it was then shown to a test audience in California um, after it was finished. And it was roundly and lustily booed. Um, people could not stand Cary Grant as a villain. Um, Cary Grant was the great... Um, often rightly considered the greatest actor in the history of uh, movies, and um, certainly the person that everyone loved to love. Um, charming and wonderful in every way, and the idea that he would turn out to be a villain was just intolerable to audiences. And so the producers said, um, you, can't have him, you, can't, you can't have him be a villain. So what Hitchcock had to do after the fact 
was figure out an innocent explanation for everything he does in the movie so that her suspicion turns out to be wrong. Um, and at the very end of the movie, he explains everything, and there's a lot of explaining he's got to do, um, but he does explain everything, or everything gets explained. She says, oh, I thought you were trying to kill me. He says, what? Um, and everything she brings up, he says, no, you totally misread that. Um, and then it's a happy ending, and everyone goes off happy, and, and it's just great. But Hitchcock really was trying to push actors like Harry <coughs> Grant and Jimmy Stewart into um, roles counter to what audiences expected from them. And he certainly, he, do, he succeeds to some extent um, with Cary Grant even in Notorious, where Cary Grant does some pretty mean things. Um, and he's really pushing that in Vertigo. And so um, what happens in the second half of Vertigo, I mean, the official um, villain is the husband. Um, but what happens in the second half of Vertigo is the villain really does become um, Jimmy Stewart, and that's really unexpected that he should be. Um, another thing, just to tell you, another surprising choice that Hitchcock made was the letter that um, Judy writes um, about halfway through. At least it feels like halfway through. It's actually a little more than halfway through. Um, that was a last-minute addition to the movie, um, and it also has to do with um, the sense of relentlessness on Hitchcock's part. Um, if you look at a lot of Hitchcock movies, you will see this over and over again, um, is that Hitchcock wanted us to know that's the first time we know something that, um, that Fergie doesn't. That's the first time, I mean, that Scotty doesn't. That's the first time we know something um, for sure that isn't simply what he knows because we're following his point of view. The way we followed um, Jeffrey's point of view in Rear Window. Um, and Hitchcock puts that in, um, and he put it in against the advice of the writers, his wife, and the producers, um, who just said, why would you give it away? Why not wait until... Um, she puts on the necklace. Why give that away then? And he didn't explain himself. He just insisted on doing it. Um, he said, no, it has to be there. The audience, uh, the, the, the scene has to be there for the audience. Um, and I think it's a brilliant thing to do against everyone's advice. Um, well, let me, let, let me put this as a question. Do you think it's a brilliant thing to do? Why? What does it do? Um, well, first of all, do you think it's a good or a bad thing that we, that we find out when we find out? Do you think it would have worked better for us not to be sure until she puts the necklace on? Yeah. I think it works. Like, I liked it partially because then I became more invested in the movie once that happened. But also then I'm able to, like, be afraid for her while everything is happening. Uh-huh. Like, that it actually is her. Yeah. yeah. But why wouldn't you... Actually, okay, I think that's a really good question. Why wouldn't you be afraid for her even if um, we don't know? Why does, that, why does that make us that much more fearful for her? Do people agree that finding out the truth when we find it out before he does um, makes us more worried on Judy's behalf? Um, why, why is that? Why isn't the fact that she's dealing with a crazy person enough? And I agree that it isn't. Um, 
So, uh, so the question is, why isn't it enough? Do other people agree, or would it be enough? Do you think it would be as good? You know, there is a Euro I should just tell you, there's a horrible European ending to Vertigo. Did people know about this? You'd find it on YouTube. It just goes on for another minute and a half after, um, after the end, and he goes back to see Thelma Ritter, and they have a conversation about what happened, and it's all very sad. Um, and it's, it's the European um, distributor said, you can't have it end like that. It's just, just too terrible. Um, we need to know what happens to him afterwards. Um, so you can find it on YouTube um, if YouTube is still open. And um, is it worth watching? Um, I don't think so, but, um, but it's worth knowing it's not worth watching. So you should watch it so that you, should, so that you can know that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Gwen? Um, there's also this sense that, like, if it was just some random woman, the fact that he's dressing her up like Madeline is kind of creepy, but knowing who she actually is, there, it heightens that sense of dread, and we know that eventually she will turn out to be Madeline. Madeline. Mm -hmm. um, it makes us even more concerned for her safety, knowing that she's not just some woman who's serving as kind of a mannequin for his fantasy. She really is caught up in this horrible plot for murder. Yeah. Um, when you see The Vanishing, by the way, um, I just put this in as a footnote, um, notice that there's pretty much the same time gap um, between the first and the second part of The Vanishing. I think that's, um, I think he's thinking of Vertigo. Um, otherwise, it's not the same movie. Um, it really isn't. Um, but um, there, is, there is the same sort of stutter, and that's worth noticing. Uh, someone's hand up here. Um, I think one thing that it does is it gives us a continuity of character. That is, if it, turn, if it were to turn out that Judy was not Madeline, um, then the whole Madeline story um, would, however much there might be more light shed on it, it also feels like it's over. That is, this becomes the story of... Um, what the very beginning of the movie was a story of, which is that um, Scotty watches someone fall to his death, has to live an entirely new life because um, of his psychological problems with people falling to their deaths on his watch. Um, and, um, but then the dead person is, is simply in the past, um, as the dead policeman at the start of the movie is simply in the past. Um, he's gone, and there's no point where Scotty is going to say, you know, what if at the very end of, of, of Vertigo, the policeman had come back too and said, yes, I faked my death so that you would have Vertigo, so that you would have to do this. Obviously, it would be ridiculous. Um, but what you can do in the first couple of minutes of the movie, which is dispense with a character, have a character who is there simply to plunge us, because we really do plunge um, in medias race 
it at the beginning of Vertigo, to have a character there to plunge us into a story by being the very end of the previous episode and no longer necessary except to where it leaves um, Scotty. That's fine. Um, but to then have over an hour or an hour of the Madeline story, to have the Madeline story end, and now to have a new story with yet another another fallen corpse in his backstory, but now here's a new story. No matter what happens with Judy, um, that's only half a story. We still want to know what about this mystery of Madeline? What was her relationship to the um, um, to Carlotta? Um, why was she so obsessed with Carlotta? What was it that put her in, in all this hypnotic... Um, uh, fever. And if we drop that, there's no way it can be picked up again if it now becomes the story of um, a completely different story of a completely different woman. Um, it's going to be really hard to pick it up again. Um, so what we would have are two half stories, one of them which is providing the background for the next, but the first half story would, would other than that, it would have been dropped it would have turned out to be background rather than foreground, and yet for the first hour of the movie it feels like foreground. Um, so that's one reason, I think, that they have to be the same person. Um, another reason they have to be the same person is that person becomes infinitely more complex, or at least twice as complex, which is close enough to infinity, um, twice as complex if um, she is both Madeline and Judy. And um, the loss and the gain that you get from seeing her in this completely different point of view, from this completely different point of view, um, they compensate for each other. Um, but now there's a really interesting question, which is there now from the start. Why was Judy pretending to be Madeline? Um, why did that happen? What was going on? So now you have a full story about a full character instead of two half-stories about two half-characters. Um, and I think that's another reason that they have to be the same. Um, and I think that's a reason that Hitchcock want, has to tell you that they're the same. Um, because now the character at risk is a character who the more she becomes Madeline, the more she becomes what it was that made us so fearful for Madeline which is that um, strange, vulnerable, um, and elusive and mysterious figure that she was. Um, that all of those things, um, which make Madeline an object of fascination, um, for good reasons and bad. If you read Mulvey, you know what the bad reasons are. But all those things that make Madeline um, an object of fascination um, make Judy more and more fascinating also. Um, and um, in doing so, they make her both the character that we want her to turn out to be and the character that she wishes, uh, that we wish she could resist allowing herself to be turned into. And I think Hitchcock just timed it perfectly that we needed to know it when he had us know it. Um, we needed to feel, and I think you're right, we needed to feel um, the horror that was coming um, or the horror of her situation when we realize who she is. And um, so I think it's, it's just Hitchcock had this amazing intuitive sense of plot 
Um, and there it was. What's the MacGuffin in Vertigo? Okay, so the painting is a MacGuffin for why is she staring at it, what's, what's in it. But on the other hand, there's a sense in which we know why she's staring at it, which is that it's Carlotta. and So it's an object of interest, but it's not an object of... Um, it's not an object where we feel that some, something revealed about the painting will help us understand more about, um, what, about the truth. Like... It's not as though, oh, but if you scrape the, the necklace away in the painting, you will see a secret code um, telling you how to read uh, the Mona Lisa. Um, it's, um, so, yeah, it's an object of interest, but I think it's not a full MacGuffin. Is there a full MacGuffin in Vertigo? Yeah. Isn't she the MacGuffin? Yeah, I think so. She's the MacGuffin as this mysterious figure that he's following around. So there's, um, I think, talking about silence, there's about 20 minutes of silence in Vertigo um, when he's following her all around San Francisco. There's music, um, but there's no dialogue for about 20 minutes, which is a long time for um, a movie three decades into, <laughs> into sound, um, or two and a half decades into sound. Um, and... Um, not only is she the MacGuffin, but she's um, also doing something really interesting, which is that she is pretending that she too, and maybe that's why the painting is, is a good call, um, that she too is chasing after a MacGuffin that she in fact is not chasing after because she's faking it. But he feels that if he only knew what she was looking for, um, then he would be able to figure out what the truth was. Um, and then she becomes a MacGuffin in a second way when he's trying to recreate her, um, when he's trying to turn Judy into her. Um, one other thing that, that um, I think is really, really brilliant about the movie, if you see it a second time, um, is do you remember um, how he um, first interacts with Judy? This is pure plot question. So he sees her on the street, yeah. Doesn't he follow her up to her room and ask to go inside? Yeah, so he follows her up to her room. He sees her on the street. Um, do we recognize her immediately? That, that, that's a question about the movie also. That is, um, there she is, Kim Novak. Um, for those of you seeing it for the first time, did you know that it was the same actress playing Judy and Madeline? Um, when did you realize it was the same actress? That, I think it's an interesting question. When do you... Yeah. When she opened the door. So you knew practically immediately, not when you saw her on the street. Yeah. When um, she opened the door, okay, her face is the same. Okay, did other people see it when she opened the door? Um, how many people did? How many people didn't? <laughs> how many? <laughs> uh, me, me. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the logical or. <laughs> did you think she was the same actress or did you not think she was the same actress? Yes. Um, how many people saw fairly early on that it was the same actress? Okay, and how many people did not see fairly early on that it was the same actress? Um, you saw the talented speaking, well, had people seen the talented Mr. Ripley um, with um, uh, Jude Law and Matt Damon? Um, people see that version, not the John Malkovich version. Um, 
So it, so Jude Law and uh, Matt Damon, they do an amazing job of doing each other in that movie. Um, and um, it will often be the case that you can get um, two actors who can, who, um, can look very similar. Um, I can guess why you're smiling, and I too would think of Sarah Silverman. Um, but... Um, so what you could do is have, uh, if you were Hitchcock, you could have two act- actors who looked very much like each other um, as a way of making them different um, enough that we wouldn't think they were the same person and then um, having um, a makeover that makes them look closer and closer to each other. Um, the other possibility, and this is, there's a vogue for this in the 50s, it's something Eddie Murphy did a lot later, is to have many roles played by one actor. Um, and that's something you can really do in the movies in a way that you actually can't on stage. Um, but, uh, you know, think of, think of um, is it The Clumps? Doesn't he play, like, almost all the roles in The Clumps and in The Nutty Professor? Um, and um, that was something that people were doing a lot in the 50s, um, having um, Alistair Sims plays, all the, plays almost all the roles in Kind Hearts and Carnets, um, and uh, it's pretty wonderful how he does it. So that's something that a 50s audience would accept, that if you're going to have Jimmy Stewart um, take a brand new woman and redo her as Madeline, it's fine for the same actress to play the new person as the one who played the old. Um, there's no issue with that. There's no problem with that. Um, so how many people noticing that she was the same actress realized that she was the same character? So you didn't. Um, you just thought same actress makes sense. Yeah, no, no, no. I wasn't sure, but I wasn't, like, I didn't make that assumption right away. Yeah. Well, I think Hitchcock is, is counting on you not making that assumption right away. Um, otherwise you would know immediately. Plus, you would know with no more information than, um, than Jimmy Stewart had. You would know with no more information than Scotty had. That is, you see her and you say, oh, yes, same person. He sees her and he says, oh, well, she looks like Madeline. Um, and you wouldn't think to yourself, yeah, that's because she is Madeline, because why would you know more than he did seeing that you're only seeing what he sees? Yeah. Um, but then, so after he leaves, like right after he leaves her room and she starts writing the note, is like, I mean, that's obviously when like the whole audience finds out. Yeah. But it was my interpretation that Hitchcock didn't think that people would realize it's the same actress. And right. Well, he might think that, he might realize, in fact, it might explain why she's writing the note that early, because he can't, um, he may feel that he can't keep the um, illusion going. Um, but if, I think that if we're, um, Seeing that it's Kim Novak in both roles, we can still accept that they're two different roles. Um, and we actually have to know that it's a single role um, in order for us to know more than he's known. And um, the other thing is, if not, there would have to be a moment, the drama of the necklace um, would have to be a um, detective explaining how he solved the crime moment which um, would totally break the mood. Um, That is, it becomes... What happens is when you get a piece of information like that, a reveal like that, 
um, what Aristotle, you will recall, calls a recognition like that. Um, there has to be um, focus on the reveal. That is, um, perhaps this will refresh your memory. <sighs> and um, then we're supposed to say, oh, so it's the same person, and now he knows, and now he's saying, now I know you're the same person because I am so smart. Um, and if he does that, that will totally break the mood of his just being um, completely upset. Um, and also requires that to be the break. That is, um, when we f- see what when we see that he's figured it out, um, it matters, and we can stay in the mood um, because we already know. We don't have to stop and re- regroup at that moment. And then everything that happens as they're driving down the coast and so on, all of that um, is still staying in the same mood and the same anxiety on the way um, for, that, for that trip, wondering where he's going, what he's going to do. Um, so I think that's one other reason for um, her to be writing the note um, when she does. It also means that she's in love with him, is trying to do the right thing, is trying to get away and can't, and we don't have to worry about whether we believe her or not when she says it later, um, because we know she's telling the truth, and we know that his inability um, to see that she's telling the truth, we don't have to think maybe he's right, um, which is another possibility. That is that often what you get um, in scenes of urgent conflict in movies, and usually they're really good scenes, is that um, one character doesn't believe a character that we want to believe, but the disbelief means that our wanting to believe that that character is telling the truth um, gets a reality check. Um, We don't know. We may bet, but we don't know that a character is telling the truth when another character is simply disbelieving them. Because some of the time, the disbelieving character is right. Um, and that's a standard thing that happens in movies, is that we're convinced, but the disbelieving character is not convinced. And the disbelieving character turns out to be right. Here we know we're right, and therefore we know that the disbelieving character is wrong. Um, and that has a really... Um, Um, That contributes to the overall effect of the movie. Okay, how is, I'm sure this is the question you were waiting for, um, how is Vertigo like Groundhog Day and Source Code? Yeah. Is it a lot of repetition? Yeah. It's about repetition. It's about trying to redo, I mean, if you think of Groundhog Day especially um, as... Here's a woman who's just like the woman from the last episode um, that I am trying by dint of um, how I interact with her um, to make different, to treat me differently, to be um, for me what I would like her to be for me. So um, it's certainly a movie about at least one repetition Um, which is how I get Judy to repeat Madeline. Um, What other repetitions are there in the movie? Obviously, that's the main one, and the repetition is is there um, in in their deaths as well. That is, um, halfway through the movie, 
down falls Madeline from the um, tower at the end of the movie, down falls the person he thought was Madeline from the tower. Um, so he sees more or less the same death scene repeated in exactly the same way. Not exactly the same, but close enough. Um, so that really underscores the repetition. Um, what other repetitions? How, or let, me, let me ask it this way. How else is repetition thematized in Vertigo? Where else is repetition an issue in Vertigo? You want to say something? No? Okay, so let's, let's ask it this way. Um, Judy's a repetition of Madeline. And similarly, <laughs> yeah. Do we get a re repeated experience, experiences of people falling? Okay. Um, so we get repeated experiences of people falling. Um, there's the policeman. There is the real Madeline or her corpse, um, as it turns out. Um, there's Judy at the end. What about falling into um, the San Francisco Bay? Is that Does that count as an experience of falling? Yeah. <laughs> if it can, it does. Um, but what about repetition of people? This is something we were talking about um, in some ways when we were talking about counterparts. Yeah? Don't we have, at the beginning of the movie, so we have Carlotta. Do we know she committed suicide when she was 26 years old? Uh-huh. And then we have Madeline who's following Carlotta at the, like, step by step, and so we know that she has until the time she's 26 years old before she killed herself. Yeah. So, and, and just to put it very, very simply, Madeline is a repetition of Carlotta. So Madeline is what um, what Scotty is seeing is um, Madeline repeating, apparently repeating the life and death of a young woman from the 19th century, um, and um, what that sets up is the idea that in some ways Judy is in fact going to repeat the life and death of Madeline. Um, and so you have a fictional repetition that is uh, Madeline pretending to be repeating, or Judy pretending to be Madeline, pretending to be repeating Carlotta. And then you have the real repetition, which is what happens to Judy repeating what has happened to the fictional Madeline. But there again, what you have is um, this fascinated, hypnotic um, scene of repetition which is what happens both in the first half of the movie when Scotty is following Madeline around and in the second half of the movie when Scotty is turning Judy into Madeline. Um, it's a repetition of a previous person um, that's happening there and um, the repetition of a previous person um, that's strange um, also strangely different in the two cases. Um, repetitions of previous people, there are two ways that, that and I think the movie um, nails both of them, um, there are two ways that that happens in our lives, um, repetition of previous people. Um, I mean, I think it, it is a huge part of human life. And um, the movie does nail both of them. One way that we repeat previous people is by taking them as role models. 
Um, we think of certain people as, uh, um, to use Freud's term, eco-ideals, um, as um, role models, as figures we would like to be like, as figures whose ways of negotiating the world work, and we learn how to negotiate the world um, by repeating the kinds of things that they do. Um, the more conscious we are of it, um, the more we think about it. Someone blinks, you blink. Um, that's a kind of repetition, um, and one way that repetition of a previous person is really important in our lives. Um, Freud, and not only Freud, says Freud um, oedipalizes this, but Freud basically says that's what happens when you fall in love, um, and especially what happens when you fall in love more than once, is that um, what a later love um, is, or what you want that person to be, is a repetition of an earlier love. And um, the stress and tension of love is frequently from those um, divergences, from those failures of repetitions. So um, one kind of repetition is that um, you do what it is that um, you find works for other people. Um, you do what you think, you, you imitate what you think is um, um, impressive, effective, attractive, um, charismatic, whatever. You do it yourself. You imitate it. Um, the other kind of repetition is you project onto someone an earlier person. Um, and that's something that we also do all the time. Um, your first impressions of people are always projections of earlier people. Um, that's why it's often so surprising when people are not what you thought they were going to be from your, first, from your first impression. It's because, in some way, your first impression actually is a repetition of an impression that they seem to be a repetition of an earlier person. Scotty brings this to um, an insane degree where his first impression of Judy is, and eh, she's kind of like Madeline, and then his act of repetition is to turn her into Madeline, um, to force her to repeat Madeline in every way. Um, so, but what Madeline was doing was taking Carlotta as a role model. Um, what Madeline is doing was herself repeating Carlotta. At least that's the impression that she was giving to um, Scotty and meant to give Scotty. Um, and then what Scotty does in the second half is to um, force Judy to repeat Madeline in just the way that Madeline was intentionally repeating Carlotta. Um, and since the repetition of Carlotta is a repetition towards death, you could say, um, that's what we feel, that if she repeats what Carlotta is doing, that's vectored towards death. So since the repetition of Carlotta is vectored towards death, the repetition of Madeline is vectored towards death also. Um, now, the reason I, bring, I put it this way, we still have um, to talk, talk about scopophilia, and that is something um, that we will talk about Thursday um, and talk about after seeing Peeping Tom as well. Um, I should tell you that there's one more, I forgot to put one essay in the um, 
folder for this class. So there's one more essay, which is Freud's essay, Instincts and Their Vicissitudes. Um, and um, he has a lot to say about scopophilia there. Scopophilia equals love of looking. Um, so there's a puzzle in um, the very idea of scopophilia or the idea of voyeurism. Um, and it's a puzzle that Freud um, himself is less, um, finds less powerful than other people find. Um, for Freud, scopophilia actually is the beginning of an explanation for exhibitionism. Um, and as you'll see when you read um, Instincts and Their Vicissitudes. Um, I'll just tell you about that title, that Instincts, um, which nowadays gets translated as drives, that is their um, um, impulses within us that are um, very deep and in some sense biological in nature, although that's not quite Freud's terminology there. And um, what we are are... Um, figures of self-control who attempt to prevent our instincts from getting the better of us, um, who attempt not simply to be instinctual beings. If we were pure instinctual beings, um, we would not um, be human and social. Um, vicissitudes, the vicissitudes of instincts, um, refers in Freud's terminology to what happens to instincts when they are counteracted, when we counteract them, um, especially when we counteract them through repression. Um, so that if we have an instinct um, to take an example, um, to take a typical example, um, if we're sexually attracted to someone who is taboo, um, what we may do is um, turn that instinct into its opposite. We may find and decide to find repellent or force ourselves to find repellent um, someone who is actually extremely attractive. Um, one common place that you'll find this in contemporary discourse is the idea that homophobia is almost always um, a reversal, a vicissitude of same-sex desire. Um, so you have an instinct of desire for someone, and um, because you can't stand that idea about yourself, you repress it and, and um, manage to flip it into its opposite under repression. That's the vicissitude the instinct undergoes. Um, it's still there, but it looks like the opposite of what it is. So don't have the idea that um, we're a seething cauldron of instincts this is not Freud's idea, or at least not the mature Freud's idea, that we're a seething cauldron of desires that we tamp down and pretend we're not. It's rather we are a seething cauldron of desires, and we have to let those pressures out. Um, and in order to let them out, we have to misread what they are or, or direct them in different directions, um, sometimes in the reverse of the direction to which they would naturally go. Those are the things called vicissitudes. So Freud is really interested in how instincts seem to turn into their opposites. The one that concerns us here um, is how exhibitionism can be derived from scopophilia, how loving to look can turn itself into loving to be looked at 
um, how does one reverse into the other? As Freud puts it, how does the active reverse into the passive? Um, going from loving to look to loving to be looked at. He has a really, really interesting um, account of that, um, but what he doesn't spend that much time talking about is um, the strangeness of loving to look. That is, why is it, where is it, from what does it come that people get some sort of sexual charge out of watching, out of voyeurism, out of pornography? Um, why is it the case that, it's, that some people prefer looking to doing? Um, that certainly seems to have been the case with, Hitch, with Hitchcock himself, um, who is reported by um, some of the actresses who worked with him was reported or, or said to have reported himself as being impotent, but boy, was he a voyeur. Um, boy, did he love looking. Um, but for others, it's, it's simply a pleasure to look. Um, this is one of the things that Mulvey is talking about. And there's a puzzle. Why is there a pleasure in looking rather than in acting? Now, one possible answer to that is that looking is exciting and that there's a pleasure in the build-up of excitement, um, not only in its release, but in its deferred and delayed release. And that's a fairly standard account of voyeurism, is that um, a voyeuristic attitude towards things builds up excitement, builds up while deferring the possibility of pleasure. So hang on in that account to the idea of deferral, of not having the pleasure come too soon, of building up excitement, which voyeurism makes possible. Um, that idea of deferral is an idea that in itself is something um, that Freud is very, very interested in um, and is related to, and this is something we haven't yet talked about, but is related to what Freud has to say about repetition. So this is where I really wanted us to get to today, and um, we'll go on a little bit with this on Thursday. But here's what, what Freud was really interested in, um, in the context of the Great War. Um, he was interested in the fact that people in, he was interested in what's called shell shock, or now called PTSD. Um, and um, the question that Freud asked, it was a question that a lot of people were asking in the context of the Great War, um, was why did people keep going over the sudden traumas that they would experience in the trenches? That is, um, you'd be in a trench and suddenly a bomb would go off and your legs would be blown off and all your buddies would be killed um, from one instant to the next. Um, why did people keep replaying traumatically keep replaying these scenes, reliving these scenes in their minds. Why this endless reliving of these traumatic scenes? Um, and I should just say that the way to understand what's so brilliant and deep about Freud, and people don't read him now so they don't actually know that he's brilliant and deep, um, they think they know what he says, but in fact they don't. Um, but the way to understand what's so brilliant and deep about Freud, even if you don't like his answers, is that the questions that he asks are questions where you might say the answer is obvious, 
except the answer actually simply gives rise to the same question that it's supposed to answer. So you might say, well, something dramatic happens to you. Of course you're going to go over it again and again in your mind. But why? Why would you do that, especially if it's so unpleasant? Why would you go over it again and again in your mind? Another question that Freud asks, um, and again, the answer seems obvious until you um, ask why is that the obvious answer, um, Freud asks, why do we feel sad when people die? Why do we mourn? Um, what does mourning do? What good is mourning? And the answer is obvious. Why do you mourn when someone dies? Because you love them and they're dead. OK, yeah. Um, you love them and they're dead. Why do you mourn them? Um, why isn't that simply the fact of the matter? Um, so it's not just why do you feel sad, although that's part of it. But why do you feel sad for a while? Why do you think about them a lot? Why do you repeat in your mind um, all the memories that you have of them? Why do those memories suddenly become hyper-present to you? People that, things that you haven't thought about them for years, suddenly you find yourself thinking about them all the time. And why eventually do these things, that sadness, that sense of loss, why does it eventually fade? So Freud asked those questions. And um, he didn't simply say, well, yeah, it's clear that um, if someone dies, you're going to feel sad. Um, the question is, what does it say about us that that seems clear? What does it say about the human mind that it seems clear that if someone dies, you're going to be sad? Um, some, animals, some animals mourn, others don't. Most don't. Um, some do, most don't. Um, so what is it that mourning is doing? And in particular, the question in Freud, so Freud's idea is that is his original idea is that almost by tautology, almost by self-definition, everything we do, we do in order, I mean, it's, a, it's an idea from economics, everything we do, we do in order to maximize pleasure. Um, now, that's not to say that we... Um, think, oh, there's such a thing as pleasure in the world. I will seek to maximize it. Rather, it's that pleasure is itself the experience of doing, um, is, is the reward for doing certain things that it's biologically apt for us to do. The most obvious example of this is sexual pleasure. The reason there is sexual pleasure is so that we'll reproduce. Um, without sex, without sexual pleasure, um, there'd be a lot less reproducing going on. So evolution endowed us with a reward, namely pleasure, for engaging in sexual acts um, in order for the reproduction of the species to occur. So if you say, if, as Freud says, um, everything we do, we do in order to maximize pleasure, um, that's not as um, crude as it seems because what that means is one of the things that we do in order to maximize pleasure is we put pleasures off. Um, we decide that we want to have a successful career because that would be a pleasure, and that means we have to work really hard studying, um, even though in the short run it would be more fun um, to be drinking beer in the long run, we have learned that the best way to maximize pleasure would be to study for the test and not just get drunk the night before. Um, even though getting drunk is a pleasure and studying is not, 
well, I hope it is for you guys, um, even though getting drunk is a pleasure and studying is not, um, you'll have more pleasure over the next year if you study than if you get drunk. So the pleasure principle explains even things that don't seem pleasurable. The question then is, but why repeat trauma? What is the pleasure of that? Or another question is, why mourn? What is the pleasure of that? If pleasure really helps to explain human motivation, there seem to be certain things that humans do really ferociously and they all seem to have to do with repetition, with pointless repetition, which repetition with repetition that gets you nowhere, that humans do ferociously and that don't yield pleasure. That's the question Freud asks himself, and he puts it quite simply, whence the compulsion to repeat? So that's the crucial phrase, repetition compulsion. Whence the compulsion to repeat? We will pick this up on Thursday. And... Uh, Citizen Kane. Yeah, uh, in the that was great. Mo- in the movie, 